Well, good morning. Hope everybody's doing awesome. We'll kick some lights on here in just a second. You can grab your Bibles and uh, go ahead and open them to Psalm 145. There we go. Great. Psalm 145. You can turn there. Um, this will serve as a jumping off point for our reflection from Deuteronomy 32. So if you want to put your finger in both places this morning, we'll spend the majority of our time in Deuteronomy 32. So Psalm 145, Deuteronomy 32. You can go ahead and turn there. Let me do a couple of housekeeping things for those of you that are a part of the Renewal family. A couple of things you need to be aware of. One, uh, we're missing a good segment of our community uh, this morning. They're away at youth camp uh, this week. This is our first uh, attempt at doing that as a church plant. And so uh, Toby and several of our families have uh, a number of the students uh, at Pigeon Forge this week for youth camp. So you guys pray for them. Uh, Toby texted me this morning and said things were going really well um, and encouragement to us. So uh, it's exciting for us as a little church to be able to do uh, things like that for our teenagers to begin to, to grow into doing some of those. So uh, we're really pumped about that. Secondly, would be tonight is our first Sunday family fellowship at the park. Um, interestingly, uh, the Lord uh, has um, chosen uh, some unique weather patterns uh, at this point. And uh, so I think it's 50% chance of rain uh, this evening, and we're going to kind of monitor that and give you an update. We don't really have a fallback plan of facilities. Can't really come back to the school and hang out tonight. So uh, we'll give you an update uh, by about 3 o'clock this afternoon on uh, whether it's on or not. Uh, bank on the fact that it's going to happen. There's shelter there. Uh, but if it's just horrendous, we'll cancel that. The majority of you that are technologically savvy can find that out online or through social media. Those that don't uh, do any of those things will try to communicate through small group leaders, and your small group leaders can send a text message uh, out to the rest of the group. If you're new with us this morning, welcome. We are midway through a teaching series looking at the attributes of God this summer from Psalm 145. And uh, we're going to read together in just a moment the first seven verses of this psalm. Our community is committing to attempt as best we can to memorize this psalm together. Now let me, uh, for those of you that are thinking, man, you're only through like seven verses and the summer is uh, halfway through. We're going to go a little Alvin and the Chipmunks here as we get toward the end. The pace is going to pick up a bit, all right? So he's going to list a number of these attributes early that he's going to return to consistently throughout the psalm. So don't be surprised if like next week we go from 7 to 15 on you, all right? So go ahead and uh, you, you might want to read ahead a bit. So let's, uh, let's stand together, copy of the scriptures, and let's read aloud together the first seven verses of Psalm 145. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, they will be on the screen. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works i will meditate they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and i will declare your greatness they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness 
and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. You may have a seat. Father, this morning we ask that you would, by your grace and through the power of your spirit, soften our hearts such that they are receptive to your words. May those that are complacent and apathetic this morning be spurred from that as they see the beauty that you possess. May those of us that are too comfortable be prodded from our comfort. May those of us that are discouraged and disheartened this day be encouraged by the wonder and the splendor that you possess. Would you be so kind as to allow your word to penetrate the unique hearts that are in this room such that it brings forth abundant fruit today? We ask it for the fame and the glory of Christ. Amen. This morning, um, my attempt is to discuss with us this phrase at the end of verse 7. As the psalmist says that he is going to pour forth the fame of your, this is God's abundant goodness, and sing aloud of your righteousness. Now, just off the top, that phrase in and of itself strikes me as a bit strange to sing aloud of God's righteousness. I can put this in the context of my children. If you know me, I have a six, four, and three-year-old. And my children have praised me for many things in their young lives. For my grace to give them Reese Pieces after dinner last night. Uh, for my kindness and goodness to buy them things that they desire. For my mercy to them to... Uh, not give them what they deserve in their disobedience at times. But I have never, in six years with my kids, have them sing and praise me for being right. It's just not something that they do. Dad, you are right. Now, they wouldn't have a basis for saying this, but Dad, you are right all the time. We praise you for your rightness. It just seems a bit strange. It's, not, it's one of those attributes, specifically when we speak of the Lord, that we might affirm and yet not sing of. Like we could affirm God is righteous, and that may prompt numerous things in our hearts, fear, conviction for our own sin, Maybe this desire to stand afar because he is right and holy, but to sing of God's righteousness, this seems strange. So to get to the point where the psalmist might sing of God's righteousness, and hopefully the fact that we will too as we finish this morning, we've got to ask a couple of questions. What is God's righteousness? Make sure we have that crystal clear in our minds. And then why would God's righteousness cause his people to sing this morning? 
my desire for you is that your hearts, as we reflect on God's righteousness this morning, would well up with a desire to praise the fame of Jesus. To help us reflect on that, um, we're going to do what we've done throughout this study and say what would have been in the psalmist's mind as he penned these words and what would these attributes have meant to the people of God, to the Israelites. So I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 32 with me this morning. A text where the righteousness of God is put on rich display for us. And thankfully, as Moses recounts these words throughout the psalm, he gives us, in a bit of Cliff Notes fashion, his purpose for writing and recounting this song at the end. And so what I want you to do is let your eyes drift to the end, to verse 44, Deuteronomy 32, verse 44. And let's read kind of Moses' reflection on why he penned the words, and then we're going to spin back and walk through this beautiful text. Moses came at the end of this that we'll read in a moment. He came, verse 44, and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. He and Joshua, the son of Nun, and when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all of Israel, he said, Take to heart all the words which I'm warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of the law. For it is not empty words for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. So we don't have to tease apart each word in these sentences to get a sense of the depth and the significance of the words that Moses has penned. He repeatedly says these words are your very life. They have great significance. This is a speech that Moses gives to the people on the brink of the promised land that Moses knows at this point he will see but will never go in to possess. And he tells us at the outset here that this is more more than a sermon, more than a speech, but it's a, a song. And throughout Deuteronomy 32, in this beautiful prose, Moses recounts two parallel themes that are actually the parallel tracks of all the Old Testament. The cyclical disobedience of the people of God, returning to God and then disobeying, returning and disobeying, returning and disobeying, one track, and then track number two, the covenant faithfulness of God in spite of their disobedience. So in these verses, the 43 verses leading up to this summary statement by Moses, he's going to parallel these tracks. Israel's continued unfaithfulness and God's continued faithfulness. And he says, as you reflect on this song of how God deals with a stiff-necked people, as you reflect on that and as you humble yourself beneath that, you will live. With that context in mind, let's read, beginning in verse 1, Deuteronomy 32, verse 1. Moses begins, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. 
May my teaching drop as the rain and my speech distill as the dew. Like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord. You get this sense as Moses starts that he's doing what is quite typical of calling heaven and earth as a witness. He's been living under the weight of leading a stiff-necked people who are consistent in their rebellion and seem to never heed his words. So Moses calls the heavens and the earth. No one else will listen. God surely will. The heavens and the earth will. I'm going to declare God to the heavens. If you've ever been at a point of great frustration and just stood, nobody else is listening to me, so I'm just going to talk to the sky. I'm going to recount God's attributes to the air. Surely they get who God is. I'm going to proclaim to you the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all of his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So in those final phrases, we get a sense of the turn of the gem of God's righteousness. One is this, at this way of speaking of God as a rock, it's consistent throughout all the Old Testament, fixed, secure. And then he begins to recount these attributes. The work of the Lord is perfect. His ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, without iniquity, just and upright is he. And like all of the attributes that we study of God, as we hold up the character of God, we must see these attributes both as something that God is and as something that God does. God is righteous and he does right. And this is a critical distinction. We talked about it last week with God as good. God is good, and as a result, these attributes flow from the goodness of God. Well, here we see that God is right. He is, the words that are used, perfect, just, without iniquity, upright. The imagery from the Hebrew word would have been straight. Perfect conformity to a standard. And whatever is not is crooked, perverse, depraved. God is right. He is straight. But the question is, to what does God conform? God is straight. If he conforms to some fixed standard, what is it that God conforms? What we see throughout the scriptures is that God conforms to his own character. That God is right and therefore he does right, that God's right actions are in perfect conformity to the fact that he is right. This is a marvelous truth. There is no outside standard to which God must conform. He just is right. It, uh, forgive the il illustration, the analogy, because it breaks down at some point, but it is not as if God drives the speed limit but it is whatever speed God is driving is the speed limit. See the distinction there? 
It is not as if there is some outside standard by which God says, okay, I'm going to be subject to this arbitrary standard of rightness. I'm going to drive 55. But it is that the beauty and the perfection of God is such that whatever he is doing is right. He sets the speed limit. Therefore, God is not defined in terms of righteousness so much as righteousness is defined in terms of God. And thus, whatever God does is also righteous. You see this in the verses that we just read. His work, his ways, all of these are right. His righteousness can be seen by what he does. Everything that he does is in perfect conformity to his holiness. Or to say it more crassly, God cannot be a hypocrite. For those of us that have lived under the weight of our own sin for any length of time, we know how astounding that reality is. How much we wish we could awaken on any singular day and perfectly act out of a righteous heart. That all of our actions, that all of our thoughts, that all of our motives and all our intentions would perfectly match a righteous heart and character. And how far we fall short of that on a consistent basis. And yet for God, he is right in his character and thus all of his actions are in perfect conformity to that. Whatever God does is right. As Moses continues to recount in this psalm, or I'm sorry, as he continues to recount in this song from Deuteronomy, we're going to see ways in which God's righteousness is seen. Look in verse 6, Deuteronomy 32, verse 6. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted inheritance or heritage, he found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him and cared for him, and he kept him as the apple of his eye. Quite a contrast from the questions that he asked at the beginning. You foolish and senseless people who have consistently been stiff-necked and rebelled from God, and yet here we see the Lord surrounding, caring for his people, keeping them as the apple of his eye. This is one way in which the righteousness of God is seen to the ancient Israelites, is in his covenant faithfulness to his people. So if you're taking notes this morning, that might be a good thing to jot down, because we want to ask the question, does this make our heart sing? Does this make our hearts sing? How is God's faithfulness seen? Number one, it's seen in his covenant faithfulness to his people. His covenant faithfulness to his people that in spite of their disobedience, God fulfills the obligations of the relationship. He has committed to them. He has pledged to them his covenant faithfulness. We'll reflect on that in a couple of weeks. His covenant loyalty, and therefore, he always fulfills his end of the relationship. He keeps his right 
requirements of the relationship perfectly. One scene in the Old Testament, David and Saul, David fleeing from Saul, catches him in the cave, and we see here David refusing to kill Saul because of the nature of the relationship. He has a commitment to the relationship that then drives his actions. He says, I will not do that. In the same way, God responds to his people and says, I have committed to them, I've covenanted myself to them, and thus I will act. And this is seen throughout the Old Testament in God consistently delivering the people of God from foreign oppressors and from the full weight of their stupid choices. He consistently delivers them from outside oppression and the full weight of their dumb decisions over and over and over again. And we see God's covenant faithfulness here. But we'll be honest, or I'll be honest, as I reflect on God's covenant faithfulness to the Israelites, this in and of itself doesn't yet cause my heart to sing. The second idea that Moses is going to tease out certainly does not cause my heart to sing. Verse 21. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. God's covenant faithfulness to his people, and secondly, his clear anger at disobedience. His righteous anger at the sin of his people. He says, you have chosen to bring about my anger by pursuing idolatry, by pursuing what is no God, and therefore I'm going to let foreign nations, which are really no nations at all, you're the apple of my eye, but I'm going to let them conquer you. I'm going to let them conquer you as a right response to your disobedience. God acts, and he acts rightly in response to the sins of his people. And yet, his anger at disobedience certainly this morning would not bring me out of my seat. Because as one in the New Testament church today, I would have to admit quite quickly that my disobedience last night should prompt, or last night, last week, whenever, should prompt the same angry response from God. If anything, it would cause me to go into hurricane position, head between my knees, cowering in fear. It doesn't make my heart sing. The third truth from the Lord that we see in his righteousness to the nation of Israel begins in verse 23. As if God wants to turn it up a notch. He says, I will heap disasters upon them and I will send my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by the plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave and indoors terror for young men and women alike, the nursing child, the man of gray hairs. I would have said I will cut them to pieces and wipe them from human memory. 
Somehow that got left out of flannel graph board when I was growing up. Like, that's not the text, right? Happy, clappy God. We got to, I mean, this is not, I'm going to shoot my arrows, my vent. Okay, third reality of God's righteousness, his uprightness, his fixed standard is his rightful judgment. Not just his fierce anger at our sin and the sin of the people, but his rightful judgment. That what we see here, got to appreciate this, if God, everything he does is right, then what we just read can't be wrong. God's saying, I'm going to wipe you out is the direct result of God's righteousness. His fierce judgment on sin. Because this rebellion, this perversion, this depravity, this bending from what is straight can have no fellowship and community with sin. If you remember last week, we talked from Psalm 73, the nearness of God is my good. And the psalmist is frustrated throughout that psalm of the supposed uh, success of the depraved, of the wicked. Why do they seem to have the good life and all of us that seem to walk with God seem to just constantly struggle under oppression and pain and weight? And if you remember what Asaph recounted in that psalm was that in the end, God will have the final say. While it may seem that the wicked prosper right now, in the end, God will righteously judge those that are disobedient. And let me just say to Paul's, to bring the full weight of that to, to us, God's character has not changed in that regard. You may be here this morning living in complete disobedience to the clear commands of the Lord and thinking, my life's pretty good. Things seem to be going well. I'm making some money. I've got a good relationship. Things on the outside, if you stack me up to the average Christian, in fact, I'm a little bit better. Life's going a little bit better. Would you be reminded this morning that God will have the final say in the end? God will rightly judge and divide the sheep from the goats. Your wickedness and your perversion will not stand before the holiness of God, nor would it for the nation of Israel. And then lastly, verse 36, there's this cryptic phrase that now, being the New Testament church and having the full counsel of God's revealed word, we can tease out some of the implications of this. But this is how Moses ended this song where he's recounted at the beginning God's faithfulness to his people in spite of their disobedience, and yet his fierce anger and his rightful judgment. He finishes in verse 36, The Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free, then he will say, Where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering, let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. 
this is a direct corollary to the beginning point that we made of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. In verse 36, he says, in spite of this, he's going to vindicate his people. In spite of this, he's going to vindicate his people. And two things that we know, those of us that are somewhat familiar with our scriptures, this vindication can't be based on their works. This vindication can't be based on their works because the people from this point forward continue in their cyclical rebellion from God. In fact, it may just get worse. And the other thing we know is we have no clear evidence that this happens, that God finishes this vindicating work in the Old Testament. Because as we finish the scene and the story of the Israelites in the Old Testament, it's a really sad tale. I don't, like, get to Malachi, it's like, man, a puny remnant that can't seem to do anything for themselves rebuild the tabernacle off the land they've got kicked off on, they come back, rebuild the temple, they lay the foundation, and then they just scatter and start building their own houses, and God continues to judge them. And they're just hopeless and helpless. So how is God going to vindicate his people when they have an utter inability to keep his ways? And he would be right in his anger at their disobedience and right in his judgment. This would seem to be the last thing that you would want to sing about. And yet God promises that when they reach their end, he is going to act in such a way that protects his righteousness. He is going to vindicate his people. And it's stunning that even Moses can recount these words in Deuteronomy 32, knowing that he's about to experience the just weight of his sin, dying without entering the promised land. And yet he says, God, you're right. You're going to vindicate your people. Moses bows before the consistent and high standard of the righteousness of God, knowing that that standard is what is going to ultimately save him. But this seems quite strange because we're at a conundrum in the Old Testament. We have God saying he's going to vindicate his people. He's going to bring them into right covenant relationship with him. He's going to do something about the sin problem. And yet, we have a God who in his very character is just. So we seem, at the end of the Old Testament, at a clear impasse. There is no way that a God who is just can actually forgive sin. Because to do so would require, for all of us in the room that would affirm we're sinners, is going to require God just winking at our sin. Just turning his head and kind of forgetting that it exists over there. And that is a means by which God can bring us into right relationship. If he justifies us, if he pretends that our sin doesn't exist, then we can be made right. The problem is that in doing that, he sets aside his justice. He's no longer just because he just winked at sin. Didn't hold it responsible for the weight that it deserves. This is the point that Paul picks up in Romans 3. And sadly, a text that you just memorize a sliver of when you're a little kid. And the beauty of this text is astounding. So why don't you turn there with me as we finish this morning before we approach the Lord's table. Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. 
Paul is going to ask the question, is there a way that God can be just and the justifier? He's promised to vindicate his people, and yet his character is just. He argues to the Romans that this is apart from these works of the law, beginning in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So he's very well aware of the problem. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But being, verse 24, justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded By what kind of law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You see, we could trace this argument for an entire summer, but the real thesis point of Paul here is that in the cross, God demonstrates that he is both just and justifier in a scene that none of us could concoct of our own imagination. God, in his sovereign provision, chooses to dole out the full weight of his justice towards sin on his son. That on the cross, we see the evidence of the full, terrible, and yet beautiful righteousness of God. God did not set aside his righteousness for the salvation of the church, but rather fully demonstrated it. He chose to kill Jesus Christ, as 1 John would say, the righteous, the only one who perfectly modeled the character of God. He doled out the full anger and judgment towards sin on Christ, and then vindicated his people by crediting the right life of Christ to them. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Theologians call this the great exchange that on the cross, the full weight of sin was doled out to Christ, and the righteous standing of Christ was given as a free gift to the church, to those who by faith had trusted in the person and work of Christ. For those of us here this morning 
that are in Christ that have been given a righteousness that we don't deserve and quite honestly cannot earn. This should prompt at least two things from us this morning. One, it should be the thing that causes our heart to sing. Not just songs that we'll sing at the end this morning, but it should be the thing that drives us from bed every morning. His righteousness can become the object of our worship because it is the source of our forgiveness. His righteousness can become the object of our worship because it is the source of our forgiveness. He is right, and that gets credited to me. That gets credited to me. Thus, the psalmist throughout the scriptures can sing aloud, Psalm 51, 14, sing aloud of the righteousness of God. Psalm 103, 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. We can sing this morning, church, because we stand clothed in a righteousness that we do not deserve. And secondly, and the natural flip side of the coin for those of us that are in Christ, is the righteousness of God can cause you to rest this morning. You can take a deep breath from your frantic efforts to merit God's favor. You can breathe knowing that you will not stand before God bearing the just penalty of your sin. Maybe you, like me, consistently lose hope for the greatest sinner you know, which is you. And maybe this morning you need to be reminded of the beautiful truth of the imputed righteousness of God that you have something that you don't deserve and can never earn. You can relax from your frantic efforts to earn your own righteousness, which consistently lead to failure and regret and rest this morning in the declared righteousness of God that is fixed and true today. As Matt Chandler says, if you are in Christ, God will never regret saving you. Would that sit on your heart this morning? Would that be an encouragement to your soul? And would that draw you out of your seat to this table? Those of us that are in Christ, if you think you earn a walk down that aisle to this table. Stay in your seat. Stay in your seat. You walk clothed in a righteousness that you don't deserve and that God freely give, gave. And the fruit of the vine, broken bread, is a symbol of the righteous wrath of God for your sin. This morning, we as a family come to the table. We come to the table as a community, as a family, for all those here who are in Christ, repented of their sins and trusted in the finished work of Jesus to take their sin. This table is for you. We, like Paul, would ask 
that you approach the table with great reverence. If there's known sin or hypocrisy in your heart, that you would use the space to pray, to reflect, to confess to your brother or sister long before you come to the table. We at Renewal choose to take the elements together as a family, both to approach the table together as a community. We're going to invite you in the middle aisles here to form two lines, one down this aisle and one down this aisle. To approach the table, you'll take a piece of bread, and we ask you just to dip it in the juice here, and then you can exit through the center aisle together. We choose to do that together as a family because we all receive the righteousness of God together as a church. And also, um, we invite you to do it with your family. Your wife, extended family, roommates, friends, co-workers who are in Christ, that as you exit, you would find space to pray, to reflect on the work of Christ on your behalf. If you're here and you're a parent, this is a wonderful opportunity for you to remind your children of what Christ did on their behalf. Use this as a time to pastor your home, to lead well through instructing in the elements. And as you've prayed and reflected on that as a family, you may take uh, the elements together. We won't read the text and take them corporately. If the space is too small, you're welcome to fan out into the hall, uh, down the hall to talk. If you're here this morning and you can't approach the table in clear conscience, knowing that right now you stand under the full weight of your sin, Every Sunday, the pastors, at least one of the pastors, will be out the doors uh, behind me in a prayer room. We would love to talk to you about what it means to trust in the finished work of Christ. We would ask you, if you're not in Christ, if you haven't repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, please don't approach the table, but rather pray, talk to a pastor, or simply sit quietly and contemplate the righteousness of God together this morning. Let me read Jesus' words and instruction to his disciples from Luke 22. When the hour of his death had come, he reclined at the table with the apostles with him, and he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before you suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after he had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. And it's the new covenant in my blood. God, this morning, we can only sing of your righteousness because you gave it to us through Christ. We can only stand out of our seats and sing and approach your table because the free gift 
of grace that you have given to us in the cross. I pray this morning that your righteousness would cause us to sing. Because we get it. Undeserving sinners like us can approach your table. Do you use this beautiful picture to further press in our hearts the reality of what you did for us? And would we as a community leave singing of your righteousness?